You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. Welcome to the program. I'm Rabina Ahmed-Hawk, your host, and this is For What It's Worth. Well, it has happened. Meta is officially moving to end news access for Canadians on its Facebook and Instagram platforms. Now, I've never been a huge fan of consuming news on social media because we often only see what our friends are sharing and what is being pushed to us. But this is a major deficit for many of us who do get our quick information through platforms like Facebook and Instagram. And it is going to change our experience when it comes to how we use those social platforms. I have, in the last little while, really consciously gone back to the OG style of Facebook, right? So what was Facebook first created for? It was uh, for sharing photos, uh, letting your family know what you're up to, maybe updating you know, your status, letting people know how you're feeling that day. And I really tried to go back to that because that's when I really fell in love with social media. And I felt like it was a great way for people to connect. And then reconnect in the real world, not just live on social media. And part of the reason that we do scroll as much as we do on places like Facebook and Instagram is because the news is always pushed to us on that. So we're reading the news, maybe we're going down a rabbit hole. So in some ways, this may be a welcome break that social media is getting back to what it was meant to do, connect people on social platforms. This does mean that we will have to work extra hard to get our news. So you have to go to, for example, globalnews.ca in order to get news rather than it being pushed to you on those platforms. If you click on it, it's not going to give you access. But I think that's okay. I think that when you go to a website to find news that's up to date, that's relevant to you, you are there because you want to learn about the news of the day. You're not being told what the news of the day is. So it's a completely different experience. So as much as I am disappointed that this is happening because this is only in Canada, because of uh, this bill that passed that really does show that they are serious. Meta is serious about blocking uh, blocking access, saying that this bill uh, goes against what they're trying to do, Bill C-118. Um, so what they're doing is a business move, right? They're saying, okay, we're not going to allow you to get access to this news because of Bill C-18. But on the other hand, we've become so used to using social media as a way to get our news and information. So we're going to have to change the way that we search for it. And part of that is going to be money news, right? So news about business, economics, things that are happening in the world of money. You'll have to go to the news pages in order to read what happened with Statistics Canada. Did they raise interest rates or not? You will have to go to a newspaper to read whether mortgage rates are up or not, or whether uh, inflation is taking higher or lower. That news is not going to be pushed to you anymore. It is a deficit, definitely, but I still think it's going to make us a little bit more targeted in the way that we actually consume our news. And it's going to make us a bit more curious. The one thing that social media has done, it has gotten rid of our curiosity. We no longer search for information and try to learn something new. We just sort of absorb whatever is pushed to us. So is this a good news story? Not necessarily, but it could really get us back to what social media was meant to be. It was meant to be a platform where we share our social events. If you go to my Instagram, it's only going to be filled with things that I'm doing. I'm not a huge 
uh, user of social media. But when I do post something, it's about something that I'm doing in my life so that if you're watching it, you're getting something out of it. I don't need to repost information that's all over the internet already. I don't need to tell you what's happening in the news unless it's something like, hey, I'm going to be on uh, for what it's worth this afternoon talking about what, you know, what's, what's up with car prices. I'm just making this up off the top of my head. But that I think is useful. But for, for me to just regurgitate and share information that is available to everybody publicly, I don't think that's what social media was meant for. So let's see how this goes. Uh, this is obviously contentious between Meta and the Canadian government. We'll see where this leads to. But in the next couple of weeks, we will not be getting access to that same information that we did just a couple of weeks ago. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to speak to David McDonald. He's the senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's written a paper with his partner called Can't Afford the Rent. So really breaking down how unaffordable it has become for anybody looking to rent an apartment today. I'm Rubina Ahmad Haq, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Haq. When apartment hunting, the location and size of the place you're looking for matters. But how much you can spend is usually the deciding factor. You can only rent what you can afford. And the fact is, is that rents are becoming more and more unaffordable as landlords continue to charge more and more for those same apartments. In some places in Canada, rents have risen by more than 27% year over year. A new report by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives called Can't Afford the Rent highlights how someone making minimum wage in this country can afford very few apartments in this country. Only three places across the country can you afford an apartment if you are making minimum wage. Well, to talk about this report, we're joined by senior economist David McDonald with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Hi, David. Welcome to the program. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to first start, you talk about rental wage in this report, uh, Can't Afford the Rent. Tell me what you mean by rental wage. Yeah, so this is the wage that you would need to make in order to afford a one or two bedroom apartment in Canada's biggest cities that remains in the quote unquote affordable range. So you're not spending more than 30% of your pre-tax income on rent. And then uh, what we're doing with that hourly wage, the calculation of how much you have to make an hour is then comparing it to the minimum wage in each one of those provinces to see could a minimum wage worker who is working full-time full year afford a one bedroom or even a you know a two bedroom apartment in big cities or even in neighborhoods in big cities uh, and generally i mean we find that that it's actually extremely rare that a minimum wage worker could afford a one bedroom apartment in in any of canada's big cities and you did find that there's only a few places all being in the same province where someone would be able to, with a minimum wage salary, afford an apartment. Tell me about where these places are and why maybe they are more affordable. Yeah, so there's three smaller centers in Quebec, Sherbrooke, Trois-Rivières, and Saguenay. In uh, each one of those, you could work on the Quebec minimum wage of fourteen twenty-five an hour and afford a one-bedroom apartment there. And in two of those cities, you could afford a two-bedroom apartment there 
um, you know, working at that minimum wage. Uh, this is at the city level, and it's only in Quebec. If you expand that to say, not just is there on average, you know, for the average for the city, but if you look at individual neighborhoods, so are there pockets of affordability in big cities? There, instead of three cities, you get 10 cities out of 37 that have at least a single neighborhood where you could afford a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, in the other 27 cities, there isn't even a single neighborhood anymore that you can afford a one-bedroom apartment if you're working at minimum wage. And so I think what it does, it, you know, on the one hand, it speaks to the fact that there, I think, is an assumption that maybe if you live in not the best part of town, that there are cheap apartments that you can rent there. Uh, that may have been the case at some point in the past. It is no longer the case in most Canadian cities. Those pockets of affordability, those neighborhoods of affordability, where you could work minimum wage and afford, you know, basic accommodations of a one bedroom, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so, certainly, when we take a look at at where the gap, you know, whether it is your act is actually affordable to rent that one bedroom or whether it's close, those are all Quebec cities. Uh, and so, um, you know, with the exception of places like Gatineau, which is much further up the list and is much more expensive. Um, these are places that that are generally more affordable. I mean, there, there was a more concerted effort in Quebec uh, after the end of the CMHC effort in the 1970s and 80s to build a lot of affordable housing that really ended at the end of the 80s. Uh, Quebec continued that for a bit longer than some of the other provinces. And so uh, they have the benefits of that in the sense that there's just more, more rental uh, affordable rental there. And so in part, that's what's driving the, uh, you know, more affordable rents in that province. And this is happening while rents in provinces like Ontario, British Columbia and Alberta are above $15 an hour. They've actually come up in the last few years. It's still, you're saying that less people can afford uh, a basic one bedroom apartment than they could on min minimum wage even a few years ago. Can you break down how big the increases have been when it comes to rental wage in this country? Yeah, so we were talking about, you know, the, the Quebec cities. Uh, it is worth talking at the other end of the spectrum, where is it, you know, most expensive and Vancouver and Toronto top the list. You actually have to have over two minimum wage jobs or be working 80 hours a week to afford a one or two bedroom apartment in uh, Toronto or Vancouver. It's over, you know, the, the hourly wage you need to make is over $33 an hour. Uh, and so it's tremendously expensive there. Uh, you know, if we take a look over time to say, Okay, uh, you know, the last time we did this study, actually, or something similar was in 2018. And we did it again with the 2022 data, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, in that period, there have been fairly decent increases in minimum wages in several provinces, uh, moving to $15 an hour or above in the big provinces. Uh, so this is Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta, all moving to $15 an hour or more. Uh, so minimum wage has gone up. I mean, the whole point of minimum wage is going up is to increase the standard of living of working Canadians, but who are working at minimum wage. The difficulty, though, is that when we take a look at um, this with respect to the rent that these folks are likely paying, rent has gone up more, in many cases, completely wiping out the uh, the benefits that folks might have gotten from higher increased wages. So if you take a look at uh, something like Kelowna uh, or Gatineau or Guelph, it takes 20 additional hours today, 20 more hours today at minimum wage to afford a two bedroom than it did four years ago. So you got a raise, but it didn't make any difference because that was completely wiped out by uh, higher rents. And that is 
the general trend across most of the cities. There are some cities where folks are a little better off, um, where minimum wages have gone up, but rents have not gone up quite as much. Places like Regina, St. John's, um, where uh, you know, you'd have to work actually 10 fewer hours now to afford a one-bedroom uh, over a month's period. So slightly, you know, slightly more affordable, all things considered for minimum wage workers. But that's that's really the exception in almost all the rest of the cities. You're seeing, uh, you know, seeing the situation get worse, even though minimum wages have risen. We're speaking to David McDonald. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of the report of called Can't Afford the Rent. Uh, is it still a, a, a good measure when we say 30% of our pre-tax income should go towards shelter costs? Do we need to raise that number considering how expensive life has become? Or is that still a good uh, good, good uh, level to stay at in order to show that you know we still have money left over for other things? Yeah, I mean, whether whether we change that threshold or not, Canadians have already changed it. I mean, the, 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 the way that folks are affording uh, apartments in big cities are spending far more than 30% of their income on rent. Uh, the idea of that threshold, which is used not only in rental affordability, but you'd also see the same sort of thing when you're trying to calculate, you know, how much, how big of a mortgage can you carry? You know, you don't want to spend more than 30% on your mortgage and that sort of thing. Uh, the idea is that you you do want to have money to spend on other things, right? You, you do want to have money to pay the utilities, to pay for rent, uh, you know, to pay for transportation and so on. And so insofar as you spend more than 30% of your income on rent, you're spending less of your income on something else. One of the concerning features over the last uh, year or two, despite really quite a strong labor market, you know, the unemployment rate is quite low. Uh, if you're prime working age, 25 to 54, the employment rates are historically high right now, really, uh, um, you know, particularly for women, as we've just never seen this level of prime working age people employed. Um, despite that, we're seeing this big spike in food bank usage. And so one of the interesting features of, of the sequence in which you pay your expenses is you pay rent first because you don't want to lose your house. You're going to pay utilities second because you do need to keep the lights on. And then you're going to pay for food third. And so if there's any place where you start to run out of money, where that 30% now is 40 or 50 or 60% of your income, uh, now maybe you don't have money for food. And so despite the fact that you're working full-time, full year, uh, you know, you're still using a food bank. Uh, and so this is one of the downsides of, uh, and really concerning features of this big, you know, of, of very high rents already. The increase, the, the rents have increased substantially since the survey was done. I mean, the, the data that we're using here is actually from October. Rents have seen a fairly big increase starting in November of, of last year due to high interest rates. Um, situation's getting worse. And so, yes, that bar is moving away from 30% and it's eating up other critical areas like food. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not only have rents become, uh, it's not just rents, but even mortgages, like using that same uh, sequence of events. Uh, you know, we're uh, historically, our default rates are under 1%. We pay our mortgage, <laughs> despite everything else happening. We, we we want to pay our mortgages. And then, you, like you said, some of the byproduct is people ending up at food banks because they can't afford uh, to feed their families. What's the solution here? Uh, you know, we we hear a lot about building more housing, building more affordable housing. Is that a is that a remedy to what's happening right now with the with the housing affordability crisis? Yeah, I mean that that's often you get kind of this this simplistic answer. You know, the silver bullet build, build more housing. Um, I, I I do think that's a, an undersimplification of what would actually be useful here. Uh, there are 
absolutely other things besides build more housing. I mean, one of them is rent controls, um, ensuring that uh, provincial rent controls exist in some places they don't exist, like Alberta, uh, but also ensuring that they aren't riddled with loopholes. And then if you violate the rent controls, there are consequences. So in places like British Columbia or Ontario, rent controls exist, but they're riddled with loopholes. Uh, and you can and you can just ignore the rules if you want to. There's no real consequences. Um, and so tightening up the rent controllers provincially can be an important means of restraining further growth in the cost of rent. It's not going to decrease rents per se, but it can restrain their growth. Uh, it is worth talking about wage suppression. I mean, you know, no one is advocating for a $33 minimum wage for people working in Toronto and Vancouver, even though that's what you would need just to afford a one bedroom. Uh, but I mean, that being said, it is important to talk about increases in minimum wages uh, and also about wage suppression for low wage workers. So despite the fact that we have a tight labor market and we should be seeing wages rise substantially for some of these low wage workers, we're not. And part of that's because we're bringing in temporary foreign workers that will work at minimum wage and will not ask for a raise because if they ask for a raise, they'll be deported. Uh, and so this is a way to to keep wages low for low wage workers and not let the market, uh, e you know, equalize demand and supply at a higher wage level. When when it talks when we talk about supply, yes, supply is, is critically important, but the type of supply is also critically important. So if by supply you mean build mansions on farm fields outside big cities, uh, that's not that will increase supply, but it's not really going to do anything for for rent or affordable rent. Uh, what we need for more affordable rental is purpose-built rental, traditional apartment buildings that charge that charge non-market rent. So it's not whatever the market will bear, which is presently, uh, you know, how we do development. Uh, it is uh, to cover costs, to cover costs of you know the the building, um, and those buildings should be centrally located. And unfortunately, one of you know, there's there's this sort of twin impact of higher interest rates. On the one side, higher interest rates drives uh, higher costs for landlords who have to pay, pay those higher interest rates, and then they pass that on to tenants. Uh, and so those tenants then end up with higher rent. So that's one impact mm. of higher interest rates. The other impact is that it, it depresses investment in new residential construction. And so just at the time where we need more residential construction, we do need these, you know, these purpose-built rentals. We're going to get fewer of them because of higher interest rates. There, you can do something about that. I mean, CMHC traditionally has played the role of um, reducing financing costs, certainly for homeowners. You know, you get CMHC insurance and you get a better mortgage rate as a result. Um, they used to do that a lot more for uh, for affordable housing. They right. haven't uh, right. in a long time, but it's probably something they'll need to get back into when it comes to building the right type of supply to mm -hmm. to try to address this. David, thank you so much for joining us today on the program, getting us up to date on what's happening with the rental market uh, across the country. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. That's uh, David McDonald. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a new report that shows how worried parents are when it comes to their children's financial literacy. I'm Rubina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina ahmed Hawk. There's a new report out by TD Bank that finds a growing number of parents are concerned about their children's finances. It finds that two-thirds of parents are not confident in their children's financial knowledge and 70% feel 
that they have not prepared their children with the proper financial literacy that they need. Experts say that talking to your children about money is critical to their financial success and financial wellness uh, later in life when they become adults. So how do you start this conversation, especially if you've never talked to your children about money ever before? To talk about how parents can do better when it comes to helping their children learn about their finances, we're joined by Anne Arbor. She's the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Credit Counseling Society. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rabina. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, You know, the major question I have is these numbers are pretty stark. Basically, the majority of Canadian parents haven't really taken the time to talk to their kids about money. What is the major reason that parents continue to fail to bring up this really important conversation? Uh, You know, it's really interesting. And like with most things, they're insecure in their own knowledge. And we never want to appear less than perfect in the eyes of our kids. But let's face it, more often than not, we are. And that is really the roadblock, right? So my parents never talked to me about it. So I don't know how to bring it up with my own children. And maybe it will be too complicated. I think that's what I often hear too, is that I don't think my kids are going to understand, which I, in my experience, has been anything but. My kids understand a lot more than I think they can. Um, So where do we start this conversation? So someone's listening right now, their kids, maybe they're teenagers, they're worried about, you know, how they're going to manage the money in the first job, how they're going to manage money when they go to college or university. How does a parent bring up a conversation that they've never talked to their kids about before? Well, it's really interesting. And and that's the thing is that for so many of us, look, none of us was born with money skills, right? That's from the, the from the get-go. And where are you going to learn about it? If you didn't learn about it at home, you how do you know how to bring up the conversation? I think what people can do first and foremost is back away from the technical stuff, back away from the numbers and just have an organic conversation what does money mean to you? And that can be done at any age. Um, you know, I, my favorite game was in the car, you know, how much do you think a car costs? And my kids would go like, you know, $20, big, the biggest number they could think of at the time. So at any age, having that discussion about what is money to you? What does it mean? Because it's embedded in every piece of our day, really. And that is something that I have been promoting, I think, throughout my entire career, is that there are teachable moments throughout the year, holiday shopping, back to school shopping, uh, whether we should go on a vacation or not, what kind of vacation should we go on, and helping kids understand that all of this stuff costs money, and parents have to work in order to make the money in order to make these things happen. Um, Parents sometimes get bogged down in what's the right age? What's the right age to start talking to my kids about money? What, in your opinion, would be the the best age to really have conversations about finances with your children? Well, again, I think being able to have just that conversation about what money means to you and set the tone about values and needs and wants, and that happens at any age from the very early stages of you know, waiting in line at the grocery store and seeing the chocolate bar and the pack of gum and all those other bits and pieces. And then the more serious discussions, as you point out, as teens, late teens, about first job, what to do with money, how are we paying for the next step? How am I expected to look after things? What am I expected to look after? There are teachable moments every, um, everywhere along the way. And it's also with this generation of kids, you know, you and I know the mystery behind where the money comes from that 
comes out of the machine in the wall and what happens when we tap that piece of plastic. But if you think about a school-age child, they don't have all those dots connected. So from the very early stages, understanding A, what money can do for us, i.e. pay for groceries, get us, you know, potentially hockey lessons or whatever else is going on. But connecting all the dots on where money comes from, you have to work for it. It gets deposited into an account somewhere. We don't just get to go press mission, press buttons somewhere and money magically comes out. Yeah. Money doesn't go on, grow on trees, right? That's what I used to hear when I was a kid. Sure. And exactly. I definitely, I learned uh, at a very young age what it means to earn and spend and save and, you know, things that basically helped me now actually build an entire career around personal finance. I mentioned I earlier, and how uh, parents definitely are worried about uh, this TD survey showing about their kids and their financial literacy. But this is especially true for those who have children heading off to college and university soon. There'll be managing their own money probably for the first time in their lives. What advice do you have for those parents who feel like they've just left it too long and their kids are now adults, they're heading off to you know live on their own? What, what can I do to really make things better? What would you say to them? Well, it's never too late, first of all. Um, there's always opportunity to have the conversation and always opportunity to learn, and that might be together. Um, so if you're, fe- as a parent, feeling ill-informed in any particular um, area of finance, learn with your kids. But there are terrific webinars out there. We I will, you know, we have a whole series of of great webinars, including planning for post-secondary or life after high school that the students and their parents do together. So it's a great opportunity to get those conversations going. Um, There are all kinds of resources online. Um, Most financial institutions have resources. So searching those out together and figuring out, asking the questions and searching for the answers together, I think it's a great opportunity. You know, my belief is that we should start talking to our kids about money as soon as we feel comfortable talking to them about sex, right? Mm-hmm. So we often try yeah. to bring up, uh, you know, these conversations at a time where we may feel like they need to know, learn things about consent and how our bodies are changing. And so if they can understand those topics, they can probably understand a little bit about money as well. Why do you uh, feel that it's important to bring up money at an early age, if, if that is how you feel as well? Absolutely do. And even earlier than that, to be honest, there are always teachable moments about uh, Canadian money is is beautiful. I mean, the art on it and the symbolism and all those things. And also realizing our kids very likely aren't going to see that much cash. So I don't know about you, but really, I have no coins in my wallet. I have a few pieces of paper, but I don't have any coins. So Anyway, that's, you know, understanding what cash actually is looking like. But I think you can start these conversations earlier. The why it's important, it is a life skill. Like tying your shoes, brushing your teeth, all those things. We, it's our job as parents to, you know, manage ourselves out of a job functionally, never emotionally, but on a functional basis um, so that our kids can stand on their own and they can manage their own finances so that they understand if they're taking out any kind of student loan that it's not overwhelming and they know what that means and they have a plan for that so that they can manage in today's society of very expensive housing and inflation and none of these things is a mystery to them and it isn't the the emotion gets taken out of it that they know they can handle it and if they do run into trouble they know where to 
where to find help and who to ask for help. We're speaking to Ann Arbor. She's the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Credit Counseling Society about how parents can bring up the topic of money with their kids, especially if they're not feeling confident about uh, talking about finances and how to manage money. Um, what can a parent do who's feeling that way to find the confidence to sit down and talk to their kids? Um, is there some work that they need to do, some homework they need to do before they actually have that conversation? It really is. I think the very first place to look is is look within ourselves, to understand our own money history, um, what money messages we received growing up, and then do we want those to be the same messages we're delivering to our children or different ones? Um, when there's a partner in the mix as well, what is their money history? And coming together and aligning in terms of what values and what uh, messages you want to share with your children going forward. And if there's any hole in your own knowledge or understanding is looking for the resources that can be helpful. So whether that's webinars or some online financial literacy courses or going to the library, they, there's a huge personal finance section. Um, and a lot of school boards are getting, yeah, a lot of school boards are getting uh, on board as well with uh, with teaching kids about personal finance, financial literacy in today's uh, in, in today's world, like you mentioned before, you know, we don't have coins and paper in our on our wallets anymore. And there are other ways to pay for everyday items, including things like cryptocurrency. And we you know we're now talking about possibly having a digital wallet, the Canadian government creating one uh, so that people can carry um, money around in their digital wallet that would be like cash. Um, it, it, is that a barrier as well, where where parents just feel like they just don't understand how money works in today's world? It very well could be. And to be fair, the kids might have the answers. So right. having these conversations really organically over over a meal, um, or, you know, driving to, to the next lesson or to school, things like that, ask your kids what they know. They might be able to share with you. And uh, my last question to you, this TD report, you know, it showed three in five Canadians worry about their children's financial future. It also showed that 89% agree that they would feel more confident if their child had improved financial knowledge. So really showing that, you know, even though I haven't given them these financial literacy skills, I would feel so much better if they did have them. Um, were you surprised by these findings where there is an awareness, definitely, that financial literacy is important, but then there, there isn't that uh, there isn't that feeling that we uh, they actually want to exercise execute on teaching their kids on what money matters are? You know, I'm not surprised. I hate to say, um, you know, we ran a consumer debt report at the beginning of uh, the calendar year. And we have one of the really interesting findings is that a good chunk of, of Canadians understand that reaching out for help is a, you know, for anything for to do with money is a good thing, but so few are willing to do it themselves. Um, it's, there's, a feeling of insecurity and not knowing what to teach um, the kids. But I think as we've talked about, there are all kinds of opportunities to learn together or to arm yourselves with some resources to be able to have those conversations. And it doesn't need to be, you know, teaching them all the hardcore numbers of compound interest and options and stocks and all those kinds of things. It's starting the conversation really simply and organically and moving from there. And thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the program and helping us uh, understand how we can do better when it comes to teaching our kids about money. My pleasure. Thanks, Rubina.
Thank you. That's Ann Arbor. She's the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Credit Counseling Society. Here's a couple of other things that I found really interesting in this TD report. Canadian parents believe budgeting and saving money are the two most important financial fundamentals for children to learn today. Budgeting is one of the the core ways that you can manage your money better. You know what's going in and you know what's going out. As well, only 29% of the parents that they spoke to actually have regular discussions about money with their children. And that is what really needs to change. There is a know-how. There just now needs to be that incentive that I know this is the right thing to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And a lot of it has to do with educating ourselves before we actually sit down with our kids and talk to them about, hey, you're moving five, six hours away for university. You have to manage your money so you have enough for the entire year to pay for things like rent and food and other things that you're going to have to uh, shell out for. And this is how you can build a budget to make sure you can do that. So I want to thank Anne so much for joining us today with that conversation coming up. Have you tried to buy a car recently and noticed how expensive it is to get a new vehicle? Well, you are not imagining. The average price of a new vehicle increased 21% year over year in the month of June. And a new car now is at a record high on average at $66,288. I'll have more of what's happening in the new car market coming up after the break. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina ahmed Hawk. The average cost to buy a vehicle in Canada right now is at a record high. Hold on to this number, $66,288. That is one year salary. That's actually more than the average salary in Canada for the average Canadian. Average Canadian makes about $55,000, $56,000 a year. And so this is making it impossible for so many to afford a vehicle. Now, part of it is higher interest rates, higher labor costs, supply chain issues that are driving the cost of cars up. But we are no longer suffering through what we were during the pandemic, where cars were in short supply and people were waiting six, seven months to get their new vehicle. That backlog has been cleared and you would think the price of cars would come down. But AutoTrader recently said that the average price of a new vehicle has gone up 21.3% year over year from June 2022 to June 2023 the average car went up 21% in price. And so that's making it out of reach for many people who do want to buy or lease a vehicle because the price is so high and just out of reach. So what can you do if you're in the market for a new car or if you're in the market to replace the car that you have? The number one thing that I would say is first figure out if the car that you own is repairable, right? So sometimes, and this is true for so many things, instead of looking into the cost of repairing something, we just throw it out and buy something new, which is bad for the environment, bad for your pocketbook. So first, you know, if you've been having problems with the transmission, if you've been having problems with the brakes, if you feel the interior could need a little bit of an upgrade, you know, maybe it's just getting a bit worn out, go to a mechanic or go to the dealership and see what the cost would be to fix whatever problem you feel the car is having. And if the car could be uh, repaired to a point where you could use it for a few more years, that's definitely going to save you money. Now, I know a lot of people argue that, you know, older car has more expensive problems and that is true, but it's still not as expensive 
as spending $66,000, right? So that's my number one. Number two is look at how much you are driving. So if you're someone who gets in the car to go three minutes down the road to get a bag of milk, maybe you need to think about your vehicle usage. So using a bike, public transit, carpooling, getting to and fro in other ways. I'm a huge, huge supporter of public transit. Anytime I can, I get on a train or a bus because I really don't like, I live outside of Toronto and I really don't like traffic as most people I think would say this is true, right? But some people put up with traffic because they like the idea of having their own car that they can get into and drive home. That is not something that's ever appealed to me. I'm totally fine getting onto a public train or a public bus to get home. Um, I don't need to be in my own personal space driving on, you know, in traffic on in Toronto, for example, on the 401 or the Don Valley Parkway. But I do understand that sentiment. Like people just like to be in their own space. But if you can get out of that thing, If you can just think for a second how much money you would save by just cutting down your car usage, that's going to save you money. It's also going to mean that your car will last longer. The less you use your car, the less wear and tear, the less maintenance, the less you have to change the oil, the less you have to change the brakes, all the things, right? Everything just becomes um, that much more affordable because you're spending that much more time before you have to actually make... incur that expense. So that's the other thing. And also think about where you live. So a lot of times when we buy a home or we rent an apartment, we look at, you know, how many bedrooms are there? What's the area like? What's the resources in that area? But we don't look at how easy it is to get to work from there. Sometimes we forget about that factor. So yes, we see that there's a train station that's close by, but what is it like getting from your home to that train station? Do you have to get in a car to get there? Could you get there by bus? What about winter? Does it make it more difficult to get to that area, to grab your train, to go, you know, you're doing the right thing by taking the train, but is it difficult to get to the train? So really look at where you are going to buy or rent at on a Monday morning, not in the summer because summer is not a normal time. So, you know, wait till September, September morning, or maybe, you know, thinking if you're later in the year, don't just go on a Sunday afternoon, look at a house rent it, buy it, and then be surprised by the fact that it's taking so much longer to get to work than it did that one day when you drove that same exact route. Because obviously there's traffic and there's weather and there's other things that happen uh, throughout the year that you have to take into account. So really be strategic about where you buy. Make sure there's a grocery store walking distance so that you can cut some of your grocery visits by just walking a couple of times or biking. That's going to help you save some money on your car too. So this price index, the auto trader puts out uh, for vehicle sales and vehicle costs, really does highlight how expensive it's getting for uh, Canadians to afford a vehicle right now in this country. And if you want to cut your costs down, you have to be proactive. It's because it's not just the cost of buying the car. You got to put gas in the car. You have to maintain the car. You have to insure the car. There's all these things you have to think about uh, that are going to make it really expensive for you to be a car owner. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the program. I really enjoyed our conversation with Dave McDonald talking about rent wages. Uh, Highlights how wages need to come up in order for more Canadians to afford rent in this country, but coupled with also rent control. So one of the fears is, is that if you raise rent, rather raise wages, that rents will go up as well to reflect the fact that people are making more money. Rents need to stay stable, whereas wages need to come up a lot in order order for people to afford even a basic apartment. And also this new report by TD Bank that finds Canadian parents are concerned about their children's financial future. Of course you are, but what are you doing about it? How are you engaging your children in money talks, in talks about the economy? How are you keeping your kids up to date on how they can better manage their own money? And how are you embedding those skills in them now that they can use later in life uh, when they want to buy their own home, when they want to save for their future? 
they should have those skills before they ever leave your home and go on to their university, college life, get married, move out on their own, whatever it is they're doing. They should have those skills before they actually leave your house. And Ann Arbor, uh, you know, put it really well that we are constantly practicing so that we can talk ourselves out of a job as parents. We want to, you know, we want to be there emotionally for our children, but the practical stuff, we're trying to teach them so they don't need us anymore for that, because that's something that's going to carry them through their entire life. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and listening for the last hour. It's been such a joy speaking to our guests, and I love getting your emails and your comments. A lot of people reaching out, asking about different guests we've had on and how they can get in touch with them. That really does uh, make me feel that we are making a difference. We're actually connecting people to the people that they need in order to have better financial wellness and feel better about their money. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I want to thank James Petrovic, our technical producer, and we will be back here. Same time, same channel. I'm Rabina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.